Welcome, brothers, to the Men's Global Live Stream. I'm so happy to be with you. If you're joining for the first time, we're in a new series called Be Good Trouble. Be Good Trouble. You know, we live in a time that is, um, well, I just want to say it's hard. It's hard being a man. Uh, I travel a lot and, and talk at different conferences, and I always open these conferences with having men look at one another and, and saying to one another, I love being a man. Uh, and when they say it, it's almost, it's almost awkward. It's almost like they hesitate to say, I love being a man. Like, like I'm proud that God created me as a man. And, and I think we need to say it more. I think we need to believe it. Uh, I'm excited uh, that God made me a man. I love the fact that God made me a man. And, and, and I think we're living in a time where, where we really don't know what that means. Um, we've, we've forgotten uh, the ancient paths, the ancient ways, what it means to be not just a man, but, but God's man. Because it's not open to interpretation. God has clearly given, given us a, a definition, a pathway of, of what it means to be His man. And He's given us a great picture of that um, in His Son, King Jesus, the ultimate man. So I'm so excited to be with you the next few weeks talking about what it means to be God's man, um, to be a godly husband, a godly father, a godly member of your church and community your world, because we're living in a world that, that is trying to rob and take away our manhood, take away our masculinity. You know, one of my favorite singer-songwriters is Lyle Lovett, good old Texas boy. My wife bought me tickets to a Lyle Lovett concert not too long ago, and we're at the concert, and Lyle's getting ready to take the stage, and she looks at me and says, I'm not feeling well. So she goes to the restroom and about five minutes later, she texts me and she says, hey, honey, I, I think I'm sick. Well, I text her back and say, no worry, babe. I'm praying for you. Um, Lyle's in his first set. All is right in the world. <laughs> and then five minutes later, she texts me again. She says, no, really, I'm, I'm not feeling well. We need to leave. So I had to leave. I had to tell, tell Lyle I got to go, man. But um, we leave and the next day I'm sitting in my office and, and my wife texts me and she says, hey, I, I know why I was sick. And I said, yeah, you know, you know why? She said, I'm, I'm pregnant. And I said, how did that happen? <laughs> and uh, immediately, um, I didn't tell anybody this, but, but immediately I, I, I started to pray and, and I wanted a little girl. It was my first child. I, I wanted a little girl. And, um, but I'm kind of a man's man, so, so I was texting my friends and, and, and texting all the guys I know and saying, man, I can't wait to have a son. I can't wait to have a, a, you know, a little boy to, to carry on the Harper name. And all the while in the deep, deep parts of my heart, man, I wanted a little girl. So we get to that point in the pregnancy where you go to the doctor's office and, 
and uh, the doctor has that like magic Harry Potter wand and like she's on your wife's belly and you can see it on the screen and the doctor's flipping the baby around and all of a sudden, it's a true story, all of a sudden I jump up and I said, Doc, there it is, it's a boy. And the doctor looks at me and says, Mr. Harper, sit down, that's its arm. <laughs> so uh, I got a little excited, I, I, I sat down and the doctor flipped the baby again and said, actually, it's, it's a little girl. Oh, I was just so overcome by joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. Um, I had a little girl. What's interesting is, is to the untrained eye staring at that screen, I couldn't tell the difference between a boy and a girl. And men, hear me say this. We're, we're living in a time where the world, where culture doesn't want you to know the difference between a boy and a girl. They act as if there is no, no difference. Uh, uh, culture is, is robbing us of our manhood. It's robbing us of our, of our masculinity. They don't want us to be men. Culture tells us that, that as men, um, we're kind of useless. The, the leading feminist thought today is the world needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That's what she says. So, so a lot of what you see on television and see in the movies, a lot of what you listen to and read, listen to in music is, is telling you as a man that you're, you're, you're useless. And, and, and sometimes it tells you um, as a man, you're the problem. You know, you're no good, you're, you're trouble. And, and my fear is, this, is, is that we believe this lie. We believe this lie to, to the point where we're no longer proud to say, man, I love being a man. As, as men, we feel useless. Uh, because we feel useless, we don't know what to do with our manhood, with our, with our masculinity. We, we've lost our identity. You know, there were some phenomenal men's movements in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s where you had, you had a generation of men who, who knew how to be men, but they weren't being men. So the, the call, the fight was against passivity. Today, I think it's different. Today, I think we have a generation of of, of men who want to be a good man. They, they, they want to be God's man, but they just don't know how. They haven't been given a definition. They haven't been shown a path. They didn't have spiritual fathers and spiritual leaders in their life saying, this is the way. And because of such, we've, we've lost our identity as men. Think about it. In the 1970s, it was, I don't need a man. In the 1990s, it became, I don't want a man. And today in 2023, it's what is a man. Men today are lost. They, they live in, in, in what I call a masculinity fog. They don't know their purpose in the world. They don't know their purpose in the church. They're just bouncing from, from one cultural expression, one cultural definition to the next. And, and, and they leave just a, a wake of pain and trauma and hurt behind them. Men today don't, don't know that they're needed. Think about this. When was the last time you heard a teacher, a politician, a preacher say publicly, men, we need you. And, and we don't just need you to show up and tithe and park cars. Like there's more to this life. There's more to this faith than just that. Like we need you. We need you to lead in your community and lead in the church and lead in your home. 
I think we don't say that enough. I think we need to tell men they're, they're not just wanted, but they're needed. You see, our culture has either outsourced or canceled much of what it means to be a man. And where they haven't been able to destroy manhood, they're telling us, um, we don't need you. Um, you're the problem. You're trouble. Well, I'm here today, session one. I'm, I'm here to tell you that, that you are trouble, but, but it's time to be good trouble. I love what Representative John Lewis said, the guy that marched with Martin Luther King Jr. He said, he said man, be trouble, but be good trouble. I want you to think about what Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. This is, this is the greatest sermon. We, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. It's the greatest sermon ever preached because the greatest preacher preached it, King Jesus. And in Matthew 5, 13, um, notice what Jesus calls those who follow him. He's, he's talking to his, his disciples. He's talking to the, to the 12 men following him. And, and he says, you are the, you are the salt of the world, salt of the world. And, and sometimes, sometimes when, when God speaks to us in scripture, sometimes it's prescriptive and sometimes it's descriptive. So when God is prescribing something, he's saying, do this and, and this will happen, or don't do this and, 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 and this will happen. He's prescribing something. More times than not in scripture, though, God is describing something. So when he says you are the salt of the world, he is describing who you are in Jesus. He is telling you that, that if you are a disciple of King Jesus, if you are a born-again believer, this is what you are. Salt is not what you're aspiring to be. It's not what you hope to be. It's not what you one day will be. You are salt if you're following King Jesus. It's, it's descriptive. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are a salty disciple. Now, if you've been in church any amount of time, my guess is you've heard this preached a bunch of different ways. And, and, and this is what I think. I think the modern church has, has really missed the meaning of this text. You've heard that salt is a seasoning, that, that salt's purpose is to flavor things. And as Christians, that's what we are. We're the, we're the seasoning of life. We bring the flavor of Jesus with us wherever we go. You've heard that salt creates a thirst and we should be thirsting for the things of God and creating that thirst in others. You've heard that salt heals wounds and that's what we are. We're the agents of the great physician. We, we bring healing and hope wherever we go and the list goes on and on. Salt can be used a hundred different ways. The problem is that Jesus never says his disciples are flavoring in the world. I don't think the picture here is one of a ruined plate of food that just needs a little seasoning. Adding, adding salt to a terrible meal doesn't make the meal any better. Brothers, I think Jesus's disciples are exactly what he says they are. I think his disciples are salt of the earth. Literally, the Greek translation here in Matthew 5, 13 reads, we are salt on the land. 
salt on the G. Jesus says we're salt on the land, which is more threatening than it is seasoning. You see, Jesus doesn't use the word salt the way we use it. Jesus uses it with the history of Scripture in mind. So think about this. In the Old Testament, God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah left behind a mound of sulfur and salt. When Lot's wife turned and looked back, she turned into a pillar of salt. When Israel broke covenant with God, when they disobeyed God, Moses warned them that the Lord would make the whole land a burning wasteland of salt. Nothing planted, nothing sprouting, no vegetation. Deuteronomy 29 verse 23. If you wanted to defeat your enemy, you cut off his food supply by salting the land. This is how Abimelech beat Shechem. He sowed salt on the land, Judges 9.45. It's the same thing the Roman army did in the Jewish wars of 60 AD. They salted the Palestinian lands. The prophet Jeremiah, to kill off any impurity on a newborn baby, he would rub the baby with salt. It's interesting. Get to the New Testament. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, that he desires to bring fire upon the earth. And his disciples fulfill that desire. When, when Jesus scatters his salty disciples, the world becomes a salty place. Now, you might be thinking, why, why would Jesus want to do that? Well, the real question is, why wouldn't Jesus do that? When a culture's chief domestic product consists of greed and lust and oppression and cruelty and lies, man, that culture needs to be salted until every evil thing has withered away, until every root of evil is dead. Brothers, Satan is the prince of this world. But Jesus annihilates his harvest by sending out salty disciples who obey God's commands. When we walk as King Jesus walked, we can't help but choke out worldly fruit. Jesus commands us, us men, his disciples, he commands us to resist the world's desires, resist the world's values. And when we do that, man, we put salt on evil. We undo evil habits. This is really what the Beatitudes are all about. Matthew chapter 5, they make us salty. Putting on humility makes us salty. Confessing and mourning sin makes us salty. Practicing mercy, creating peace, thirsting for righteousness, joyfully receiving persecution. We are salty men for the King. The Beatitudes help us produce and store up salt so that when we go, we go salting the land. We go pushing back against the prince and the principalities of this world. And listen to me, men, this is dangerous living. The world will see you as a problem. The world will see you as trouble. Our world, it is decaying and dark. It's built on vengeance and lust and hatred, even 
Many of our churches are energized by hostility towards other churches. And when you as salty men live in opposition to this type of world, people will naturally see you as a threat to their way of life and good they should. Real men, serious Christian men are a threat to this way of life. When envy and self determine the structure of social life, selfless men are dangerous. Selfless men are a problem. When disunity and division and hate define cultural structures, men who reach across the barricade to bless an enemy, they are trouble. Men who extend the hand of fellowship across racial and political and socioeconomic lines, they are dangerous. They're a problem. In a world where every sexual inclination demands respect, men who speak with conviction and compassion, men who urge the lustful to remain pure, man, they're just not close-minded. They're dangerous. Those men are trouble. Brothers, in a world full of liars, truth-tellers must be silenced. <laughs> truth-tellers are trouble. It's no accident that Jesus calls his disciples. He calls us salt on the land right after telling us that we should expect to be persecuted. Men, we're not adding flavor to the systems of the world. We are destroying the systems of the world. We're not adding flavor to horrible food. We are throwing that food away and we are inviting people to the king's table. Man, as men, we're, we're dangerous. We're, we're trouble. We just need to be good trouble. I love the story in, in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, the, the Apostle Paul goes to Ephesus to check on the church he's planted. And when he does, he, he shows up in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he's doing amazing things like he's healing the sick and he's casting out demons. In one of the craziest stories in the New Testament, Acts chapter 19, seven sons of a Jewish priest, seven sons of Sceva, they they see Paul cast out a demon and they say, man, we want to do that. So they go looking for a demon possessed man and they find one. And they go up to this demon possessed man. And this is what scripture says. They look at the demon and they say, um, excuse us uh, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims come out. And I love what the demon says. The demon looks at them and says, Jesus we know, and Paul we've heard of, but who are you? And the Bible says that the demon leaps on them and, and beats them to, to, to where they flee the house wounded and naked. Now, I want you to think about that. I'm a, I'm a pretty strong guy. I could probably hit you and knock you out. It's a whole nother thing for me to hit you and your pants come off. He says they, they left the house wounded and naked. My man beat the pants off these guys. And I think we learned something from this story, right? 
we learn first that if we're going to go up against the demonic, if we're going to go up against the prince and the principality of this world, we had best know Jesus. We had best have a personal relationship with King Jesus. We can't go in the name of Jesus whom Paul knows. You can't go in the name of Jesus whom your grandmama knows, whom your mama knows, whom your pastor knows. Your pastor doesn't have enough faith to get you into heaven. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You've got to know him as Lord and Savior. I think that's the first thing we learned. But the second thing is so good. The second thing is equally as good. Notice the demon says, um, Jesus, we know, and Paul, we've heard of, but who are you? I love that, that when demons get together in the demonic realm, they talk about Paul. Like in the little demon break room, Paul's name comes up. I mean, what kind of good trouble do you have to be, do you have to be stirring up? What type of good problem do you have to be? that demons know of you, that they hear your name? How do we live in such a way that, that we get on hell's hit list? Like, I want hell to know my name. I want them to know your name. And here's the problem, man. I don't think hell knows enough of us. Man, I don't think we're on the list. I think we're just living this kind of non-existent life we're just slow quitting our manhood just kind of just kind of giving it away inch by inch until we get to a place where we don't even know what it means to be a man anymore we don't know what it means to to be god's man to be good trouble man i want us to be good trouble i want us to be a problem i want us to live in such a way that hell takes notice and heaven applauds us. We need to, we need to rebuild and, and redevelop what I call an, an ethos of courage, what it means to be a courageous man, God's man. You know, in a recent Fox News segment, Laura Ingram, the... Um, the host, she, she asked a question. She asked, where have all the, the men gone? And, and the piece was in response to, to the public abuse that is happening to women all across our country. Uh, like the recent abuse of, of a woman on a Philadelphia train, uh, the woman was being sexually assaulted. And, and instead of anyone intervening, uh, the eight or 10 men on the train, they, they literally filmed it with their phone so they could get more follows on Instagram. It was crazy. This woman's being sexually assaulted and no one's doing anything about it. And I'm kind of digging the Philadelphia DA right now. Not only is he prosecuting the man that did it, but he's also prosecuting the eight guys that filmed it. Someone should have stepped in. You know, Laura, Ring, Laura Ingram is asking the right questions, man. Where have all the men gone? And, and the simple answer, I think, is we've lost an ethos of courage. We've lost that courageous ethos, the one that God gave us when he put us in the garden and he told us to subdue it and protect it and cultivate it and grow it. Like, like that was our call as a man. 
popular psychologist and and speaker Jordan Peterson calls this the emasculation of the monster. He says, every man has a monster within him and culture says, kill the monster. I'm, I'm telling you today that, that every man has a warrior inside of him. Every man has a victor, a champion inside of him. And, and culture is telling you to, to kill that champion, to kill that victor. I'm telling you to, to let him out and train him up. To let him out and train him up so that you can be the man that God has called you to be. And that, that little girl that God gave me that I told you about at the top of the show, man, I love her more than anything in the world. I'd give my life for her. You know, every day I still, I still share with her uh, fairy tales. I read her stories and, and, and every fairy tale, the storyline is the same, right? The antagonist is the dragon. The protagonist is the hero, the knight. And, and behind every dragon is one of two things, um, either gold or girl. Today, men have neither. They don't have gold or the girl. Why? Because, because we've lost our ethos. We no longer dare to fight the dragon. And this is what happens when, when culture laughs in the face of chivalry. This is what happens when society detests strength. This is what happens when words like gallantry and bravery and valor are not just antiquated, but they're despised and they're labeled as sexist and misogynistic it's a world where self is king and virtue is foolish convictions are silenced by fear in a world like this man men lose their ethos they lose their ethos of courage i'm telling you it's time to take it back I'm telling you, I want you to move in such a way that hell knows your name and heaven applauds you. And how do we do that? How do we develop this, this ethos of courage in ourselves and in the men under our, our care? How do we become the wall? I love, I love history, and there's this story from history about about Persia, as, as Persia is moving throughout Greece, conquering all these Grecian city-states, um, Xerxes, the king of Persia, he would send a Persian messenger into the city beforehand and warn them that Xerxes is coming, warn them that Persia is coming so that they could basically lay down and just give up, just acquiesce. So history tells us that this Persian messenger gets to the Grecian city-state of Sparta. And he walks into Sparta and he says, hey, I want to meet with the king. The king comes out and the, the Persian messenger says, hey, listen, you have a problem. Um, the Persian army is coming and we're going to annihilate you. We need you to surrender. And not only do you have that problem, you have, you have another problem. You don't even have a wall around Sparta. Like you have no defense. We are going to wipe the floor with you. And the Spartan king, he just kind of smirks and he makes this noise. He says, hoorah. And then all of a sudden, thousands of men appear shield and spear, and they stand shoulder to shoulder 
forming a circle around the city. And he looks at the Persian messenger and he says, we are the wall. We're the wall. Brothers, listen to me. You're the wall. You're the wall around your family. You're the wall around your home. You're the wall around your church. You're the wall around your city. It's time for us to be the wall, the wall that God has called us to be, to, to reactivate, to develop that ethos of courage. How do we do that? Man, I can't wait to be with you next week to talk about building out that ethos of courage so that we can become the wall God has called us to be. Until then, if you want to learn more about Better Man, man, go to our website, check us out at betterman.com where we present God's good and timeless definition of what it means to be God's man. Check out the web and I'll see you next week.